Praise be to God, we're continuing forward together in the book of Acts. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're in Acts chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 19 about faithful Ananias. And I'll read from verse 1 through to verse 25 of chapter 9. Brothers and sisters, please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing none. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. (coughs) Ate nor drank. (coughs) Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas For one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has Come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen, amen. Please be seated. 
So we'll continue to see the works of Jesus here in the book of Acts. We're going to learn about Ananias today. We're going to look at the Lord's call to Ananias, that he's to go to Saul. We'll see that in verses 10 through 12. Ananias has some concerns that are reasonable, that he voices to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And the Lord responds graciously. He commands him, but he graciously responds and explains some more to him. And then Ananias obeys, and he goes to Saul. We see that in verse 17. Saul sees. Saul gets up and gets baptized. Saul has some food to strengthen his body. And he spends some time there with the disciples in Damascus, time that's a bit different than the time he had planned to spend with them. It's amazing the difference the gospel makes in relationships. <clears throat> I'll put there the map again for you. We'll be talking about places. And I want you to see here again where Damascus is up here in Syria. Uh, in my reading, this map I don't think actually encompasses all of the Decapolis. I think um, when you look at ancient writings, Damascus is actually in- included as one of the ten cities of the Decapolis. So you can see that's further north than what this map shows here. And we'll see as we look at the book of Matthew um, some of the background uh, in regards to that region. All right, so first, first about Ananias. The text says, Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. So the Lord brings another individual before our eyes for us to consider. Now one man uh, bearing this name has served as a cautionary tale. Remember him? It's a different guy because the first one is dead. When he and his wife, Sapphira, dropped dead after they lied to God and to his church. And so if you want to name one of your children Ananias in the future, make sure it's after the second Ananias and not the first. But the Ananias of Damascus is a good example for us to consider. We can learn from him. We can see the way that he lived out his faith, and we can grow up as we emulate him. And we learn more about Ananias in Acts chapter 22, when Paul is recounting his own testimony to this Jewish mob in Jerusalem when he's been arrested by the Romans at that time. Acts 22.12 says, Then a certain Ananias, this is Paul speaking before this mob, he's speaking in Hebrew to these fellow Jews, he says, Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there. So that's how Paul, in his future testimony, looking back on this time, this is how he describes Ananias to the Jews. So what do we know about Ananias of Damascus? Well, he was a disciple. He was a follower of Jesus Christ, one who had come to believe in Jesus and who was learning of Jesus. The word disciple, its root means to be a learner. So he was learning of Jesus, learning how to follow Jesus Follow along with Christ, he was a Christian. He was a devout man following God's law as well. So not only was he a believer, but it appears as though he has this background of being a respected Jew, a good Jewish man in that area. And he had lived in Damascus long enough to have developed a reputation among the Jews. So it appears as though he wasn't a fellow who had just recently moved to Damascus. He'd been there for a while. The people knew him. They knew that he was a devout man, and they knew that he was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he had a good testimony. Not only was he known, and he'd been there for a while, but his testimony was good. He had a good reputation with all the Jews who lived there in Damascus at that time. You can understand why Saul would cite him when he's speaking to the Jews later in his life when he has been done all of his ministry and now he's gone back to Jerusalem in chapter 22. 
So, thinking about Ananias, it appears that he was a faithful Jew living in Damascus for some time who had heard the gospel and had become a follower of Jesus Christ, believing Christ, believing Jesus to be the foretold Messiah. Perhaps Ananias had become a believer during the time of Christ's ministry when he was in northern Galilee in the early part of his ministry, which we know had such great influence that it spread into Syria. So let's go back and look at the description in Matthew chapter 4. This is the ministry of Jesus while he was still on the earth. You know, Jesus is still living, right? (laughs) He's in heaven doing his works. This is when he was on, on earth doing his works. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases among the people. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's what Jesus has continued to do through his church that we've seen up through the first eight chapters of the book of Acts. Going back to Matthew 4. Then his fame, that's Jesus, then the fame of Jesus went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. So there's background. We know from Scripture that the gospel had made its way into this region. It appears as that many had come from this region to Jesus, seeking to be healed, seeking to hear his teaching. And so it's reasonable to see that it's likely that this man was impacted by Christ's ministry, by the gospel that came there. Certainly, it could have been later. We don't know for sure. So in the Lord's perfect wisdom, Jesus has brought his kingdom to to Damascus before Saul goes there. That's why he's going there. But specifically in this story that he had brought the gospel to the heart of Ananias. And it was apparently known as a place there where Christians were dwelling, enough of them, because Saul and the Jerusalem leadership knew the town to be so full of Christians that it would be worth their effort to travel that far north to shut down this preaching that was going on in Jesus' name, like they were trying to do in Jerusalem. Also, the Lord, think of it, he's prepared, Jesus has prepared Ananias ahead of time for this important work. Think of how this would have strengthened Ananias and all the disciples there at Damascus to have this special task given them directly from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Think of this prior unknown Christian, not an apostle, being used by Jesus in such an important job. We see here the priesthood of all believers. We all have a role to play everywhere we are. It's not just the apostles that are tasked with taking the kingdom to the ends of the earth. It's not just the apostles who are tasked with important work. All of us are. Commentary says the person employed is Ananias, a certain disciple at Damascus, not lately driven there from Jerusalem, but a native of Damascus. For it is said in chapter 22 that he had a good report of all the Jews who dwelt there as a devout man according to the law. He had lately embraced the gospel and given up his name to Christ and, as it should seem, officiated as a minister, at least on this occasion, though it does not appear that he was apostolically ordained. But why were not some of the apostles from Jerusalem sent for upon this great occasion? Or Philip the evangelist, who had lately baptized the eunuch and might have been fetched 
there by the Spirit in a little time, right? It wouldn't have been hard for God to bring Philip there, right? Going on with the commentary, surely because Christ would employ a variety of hands in eminent services, that the honors might not be monopolized nor engrossed by a few, because he would put work into the hands and thereby put honor upon the heads of those that were mean and obscure in order to encourage them. And because he would direct us to make much of the ministers that are where our lot is cast, if they have obtained mercy to be faithful, they are, though they are not of the most eminent. So it's encouraging to see the way the Lord puts his hand on this man, Ananias, previously unknown in the scriptures, and gives him this important task. And this should be encouraging to all of us as we walk with the Lord. So the Lord calls Ananias to go to Saul. Verses 10 through 12 say, Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. So we know from subsequent verse, verse 17, that this is Jesus Christ speaking to Ananias. So like Paul had a vision of Christ, Ananias is now also brought into Christ's presence to hear his voice. So what does it mean that it was in a vision? Have you ever wondered about that? We get some helpful input from Acts chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, where Peter goes through an experience. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him, and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So, A vision is similar to a dream in that you're seeing something that is not within this realm and that cannot be perceived by our senses within this realm. Rather, when a vision is in play, we are made able to see. The one receiving the vision is made able by God supernaturally to see and to perceive beyond this natural realm into the spiritual dimension. As if the veil between The spiritual dimension which we cannot see and this dimension is removed for a time. And we're made able to perceive what is going on in the spiritual realm. Acts 2.17 in Peter's first sermon, we're prepared for this in this sermon. He says, going all the way back to the day of Pentecost. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, remember he's quoting Joel, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Part of what has been restored to us in the gospel through the work of Christ is this veil that was placed to where we can't get back into the garden. We can't see God. We can't see the angels. We are separated from the spiritual realm. The gospel is overcoming that. Christ, by his work, is overcoming that. And there will come a day when the veil is completely removed. And we will see the Lord face to face. And heaven and earth shall be made one again. So we're, getting, we're beginning to see this happening. The, 
already and the not yet taking place. We saw it with Stephen as well. Okay. He says to him, Ananias. Of course, what else would he say, right? Well, no, think about it. Jesus speaks to him by name. This is special. Being a disciple, being a follower of Jesus, is based upon being brought back into favor with God by Christ's blood. We're brought back into friendship with God so that we can each have an individual relationship with Christ. Brothers and sisters, Jesus knows each of us by name. And that's really encouraging, isn't it? To know that our Savior knows our needs. He knows where we are. He knows if we're in the dark. He knows if we're confused. And He takes care of us. He calls us by name. I should encourage you. And Ananias replies, Here I am, Lord. Kind of reminds you of Samuel, yes? Those times he kept hearing the voice. He replies. Now, Luke shares this detail. What can we learn? Ananias is ready to hear his Lord's voice. That's where Ananias is in his relationship with God at that point in time. Are are you like that? That's a question for you to consider, young and old. Are you ready to hear your Lord's voice? Ananias' instant reply suggests that he's been in close fellowship like this with Jesus before this moment. It suggests strongly that it's not something new for him. Kind of like what Samuel went through when he was confused initially. He didn't know who was calling to him. That's not what Ananias goes through. Commentary says, It is probable it was not the first time that Ananias has heard the words of God and seen the visions of the Almighty. For without terror or confusion, he readily answers, Behold, I'm here, Lord. And so this should cause each of us to wonder, Am I walking this closely with the Lord? Now, Jesus goes on and he gives Ananias very specific instructions, telling him to go to a specific street, to a specific house on that street, the house of Judas. And he has a specific focused message to give to Saul. Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. How comforting this should be if we think about Saul and what he's going through. Lord Jesus knows where we are. He knows where you are. He knows where each one of us in our state, what we're going through right now. He knows our needs. He knows our blindness, the spots we can't see, the places where we're broken and messed up that we don't see. Jesus sees us clearly when we cannot see it all, and all we can do is just pray. Commentary says, Christ very well knows where to find out those that are his, and their distress is, when their relations, it may be, know not what is become of them. They have a friend in heaven that knows what street, and what house nay, and which is more, and what frame there are. He knows their soul's in adversity. So we see Christ's personal initiative with Ananias and Ananias' personal response to him. We also see Christ's same relationship with Saul, making him his friend. We see in both of these relationships Jesus demonstrating to us how he engages with his people. 
that he is gentle and lowly. And he has restored us to the relationship for which we were designed and made by him. To know him and to be in fellowship with him. And Ananias tell, it learns from Jesus that he's being sent as an answer to Saul's prayer. That's quite an encouragement. Have you ever discovered that you were an answer to somebody's prayer? That's a very sweet moment. This is meant to encourage Ananias and also to teach him about Saul. Because we need to note first that Saul, we begin to see here, he's a new man. He's not the same fellow he was before. We know that he had called Jesus Lord, and so we know he had already started to change a lot. Jesus now begins to help Ananias understand that Saul is a a new man, no longer the dangerous persecutor that he thought him to be. Commentary says, Note, regenerating grace evermore sets people on praying. You may as soon find a living man without breath as a living Christian without prayer. If breathless, lifeless, and so if prayerless, graceless. So we should take note here that really the, the first spiritual activity of Saul is prayer. We're going to see other things coming later, other activities of faith. But right now, he's just in the dark. He is, you might say, poor in spirit. And he's just crying out to God. Next, we need to note, and and, and is that true of you as well? Does that characterize your walk with the Lord? Next, note the Lord Jesus Christ. He answers prayers. He initiates us. He moves us to pray. We see that what Saul went through at Christ's hands is motivating him to pray. And Jesus answers those prayers. How comforting, brothers and sisters. Note, let's think about this man, Saul. Let's ponder who he is, who he had been. He had been breathing out murder and insults toward Christ and his church. Murder, insults, threats, we were told. This man has been brought near now by Christ. This kind of man. And now the Lord Jesus hears this man's prayers and answers them wondrously with a vision of Ananias and then with the arrival of Ananias. Can you imagine how Saul was probably thinking through all the people he had harmed, all the fathers he had dragged off, all the mothers he had dragged off, all the children that he had left without parents. And even some of these had been put to death. He cast his vote for their death. Do you do that? Do you consider your sin and think back on your failures or even think about your failures today and find yourself in the dark doubting God's love for you? Doubting that he has forgiven you? Well, brothers and sisters, see what Jesus did with Saul and know that his grace is sufficient for you and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ that you have been forgiven and that he has made you his friend. Commentary says, Christ was so pleased to find Paul praying that he must have others to take notice of it. Rejoice with me, for I have found the sheep which I had lost. It denotes all the strangeness of it. Behold and wonder that he who but the other day breathed nothing but threatenings and slaughter now breathes nothing but prayer. Make this true of your soul, brothers and sisters. Believe like Saul 
and see the forgiveness of your Savior afresh today. Next, Jesus tells Ananias that blind Saul has been granted a vision as he prays. A vision where he sees a man named Ananias arrive and touch him unto healing. Jesus answers prayers. Not only does Jesus encourage Ananias with the details of Saul's location and with the knowledge that Saul is in genuine prayer, but Jesus tells Ananias he's the one to be used to answer Saul's prayers. And and this beautiful thing occurs that Saul knows it's coming. So Saul gets this wonderful answer to this prayer while he's still blind. The blind man sees, is what we're told. He gets an answer to his prayer right there on the spot, even before Ananias comes. How kind is Jesus to Saul? The text says, In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. What kind of answered prayer is that from Jesus to Saul? Saul may be thinking, well, I deserve to be blind for the rest of my life. Saul may be thinking, I I don't know about receiving this Holy Spirit. I don't know about receiving my sight. I I just hope that I'm, I'm not crushed under the foot of this one that I've been persecuting. You could see, like the prodigal son coming home and saying, well, at least he'll let me be one of his servants. I've certainly lost the right to be his son, but at least he'll let me be one of his servants. Do you think like that? I do. But no. Jesus encourages Saul. He gives him a vision of full restoration to come. Think about how encouraging this would be to Saul. And I hope this is encouraging to you as well. If you're anything like me, if you're anything like your pastor, you deal with these temptations to not believe who you are in Christ. To not believe who you are in Christ, but instead to believe who you are in your flesh. Don't do that. See who you've been made in Christ. So how does Ananias respond? Well, he voices concern, right? Now, I don't know if he talked to any of his friends uh, at any point along the way. Possibly that's why Jesus responds to him because he knows his friends are going to be like, you're crazy. You don't go talk to that guy. So Ananias, he's concerned. He says, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So Ananias is a fallen human being. He's saved by grace. But like us, he has limited faith. All the followers of Jesus, between now and glory, none of us have perfect faith. And Ananias also, though, has such a relationship with the Lord Jesus that he can voice his concerns to Christ in a way that is not grumbling or complaining. He says, I heard from many how much harm he's done to your saints. He's got authority to bind all who call on your name. Saul's infamy has preceded him. He's not known as a man who calls on Jesus' name. That's not what he's known for. He's known as one who harms the saints of God, who imprisons all who worship Christ. Ananias sees Saul legitimately as a major threat to his own life. Also, can such a one as this truly be changed so suddenly? Can this really happen? Can one so lately, so recently filled with such hatred be worth the evangelistic effort? 
These are reasonable thoughts. If we are not thinking according to faith and we're just thinking according to the flesh and what typically happens in the cycle of the world, commentary says, will it be safe for Ananias to go to him? Will he not throw himself like a lamb into the mouth of a lion? And if he thus bring himself into trouble, he will be blamed for his indiscretion. Will it be to any purpose to go to him? Can such a hard heart ever be softened? Note here, Jesus also, remember where we are, Jesus has only informed Ananias that Saul will be healed of his blindness. Yes, Saul is praying, he knows that. But Jesus does not explicitly inform Ananias of Saul's spiritual state. He had not yet explicitly informed him that he'd been converted. So how does the Lord Jesus respond to his servant Ananias when he voices his concern to him? He's talking with Jesus, which is what prayer is. You see what prayer is here, don't you? It's talking with Jesus. You go to his word by his spirit. You meditate upon his word and you're talking to him as you're meditating upon his word and he speaks to you through his word. He directs you. He guides you. He comforts you. He responds to you when you speak to him and ask him for help. So the Lord commands and graciously explains, and I, and I hope you'll see it in that, direct, in, that, in that order. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Suffer for my name's sake. <clears throat> so first, what does Jesus say back to Ananias? First, he repeats his commandment. That's the first thing Jesus says. He says, go. The Lord Jesus Christ, our creator and our redeemer, brothers and sisters, he is our master. We are not our own. You don't belong to yourself. We have been bought by his precious blood, we do not govern ourselves free from Jesus. We are his glad bondservants. That's what Paul calls himself over and over again, a slave of Christ. He repeats, Jesus repeats his commandment before he graciously explains more to Ananias. Brothers and sisters, we are to obey Jesus Christ no matter what. Our understanding of why he's called to do it doesn't matter because he understands. Our fear of what may occur does not matter because he is our protector. Our doubt does not matter because he is the almighty one who created all things and who calls souls into new life by his infinite power. Really, Ananias had all he needed. That's why Jesus says, go first. But the Lord graciously gives Ananias more information about Saul. So it's okay to, as you're obeying, as you maintain a heart of obedience, as you maintain a full heart of submission, to say to the Lord, I would love it if, Lord, if you could help me understand a little bit more as I'm obeying you. Like with, with, with our children, you know, they're certainly welcomed to ask us questions about the commandments we give to them as they are obeying. 
right? As they're doing it, as they're initiating, that's real obedience, is doing what you're told immediately and without complaint. But it's okay to ask questions, okay? With a glad heart, with a glad heart, doing what you're told, even if you don't understand. So Jesus says, go first, okay? And it, it reminds us, we do what we're told because he is God and he owns us. He is our Lord. He is our master. And we gladly obey him because of who he is. But it's okay to ask questions as we're obeying. So the Lord Jesus graciously gives Ananias more information about what's going on. He tells him, first of all, Saul is a chosen vessel of Christ's. So he's, he's beginning to help, to reassure Ananias. He's giving him the information that he's asked about. Saul no longer belongs to Gamaliel or any of the chief priests or any of these people who want to kill Christians. It doesn't belong to them anymore. No longer will the rebellious Jews control Saul with their lawless ways. Saul belongs to Jesus. That's where he is. He's in the hands of Jesus, not controlled by the letters he has in his pocket from the chief priests, not controlled by his hatred for the church anymore, but controlled by his love for Christ. Jesus is Saul's master now. When people need reassurance about you, could that be said of you? He, 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 that person. Jesus is his master. Jesus is his master. Jesus is her master. It's okay. You can go to that person. Jesus is their master. Next, Saul is to bear Jesus' name before Gentiles, kings, and Jews. So Saul had a mission. The mission was to kill Christians like Ananias. Jesus reassures him. He's got a new mission. Saul no longer carries out the will of the rebellious Jews. Saul will now do the will of Christ, just like the apostles have been doing. He's about to join in with what the team has been doing since Pentecost. He has been brought in. In fact, he's another apostle. Next, and this is particularly meaningful. It's a new thing. Jesus will take Saul through much suffering for Jesus' sake. Okay, yeah, I know you feel like Saul is, going to, is threatening you and you may be persecuted by him, but no, he's going to go through so much. He's the one who's going to be persecuted because I am his master and he's going to do my will and he's going to suffer as he does it. Saul's not going to bring persecution upon Christians anymore. He will be the persecuted Christian as he does Jesus' will. So he's showing Ananias the brother, brotherhood that he has with Saul. They are going to suffer together. <clears throat> He's not going to bring suffering in your life. Others will. Not him. And we need to consider this. Brothers and sisters, have you considered, really, that following Jesus involves suffering? Right? Following Jesus involves suffering. And it, by God's grace, can be suffering for his sake. Right? We can be fools, idiots, rude people who bring suffering on ourselves that we, that we deserve, right? And you can go through that as a Christian. You can repent and realize that you've been a fool. You can go through that as a Christian. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about loving Jesus and obeying his commandments and doing what he's told, expressing the gospel commission in our lives everywhere we go, 
into every relationship without exception as the top priority for our existence. It's why we breathe. It's why we still have a heartbeat. It's why we are still given the ability to go and do anything in this world is the number one reason. The kingdom of God. We will suffer in this world when we live that way. When we live that way, we will be persecuted. Especially, especially when you consider the distinction, the difference between the culture in which we live and the gospel culture. The greater the difference, the greater the persecution, the higher the likelihood, and the more severe the persecution will become. And if we have not been persecuted in this world, it's either because we're hiding the gospel or God has just been supremely gracious to us to not allow us to be persecuted yet. In today's culture, maybe you can inform me of other reasons, but those are the two that come to mind. Commentary says, those that bear Christ's name must expect to bear the cross for his name. You notice that. It's not yourself. It's not who you are. It's who Jesus is that brings persecution. And we identify with him. We bear the cross for his name. Going on with the commentary. And those that do most for Christ are often called out to suffer most for him. Saul must suffer great things. This, one would think, was a cold comfort for a young convert. But it is only like telling a soldier of a bold and brave spirit when he is enlisted that he shall take the field and enter upon action shortly. Saul's sufferings for Christ shall redound so much to the honor of Christ and the service of the church, shall be so balanced with spiritual comforts and recompensed with eternal glories that it is no discouragement to him to be told how great things he must suffer for Christ's namesake. And that's why Jesus says, rejoice when you are persecuted. Brothers and sisters, in our flesh, we do not want to consider persecution and rejoice. We want to consider persecution as something to avoid at all costs. And what happens, oh, I'm sorry, you're going through that. No, no, no. No, no, no. When you are walking in this world in the Spirit, and you are living for Him, and you are doing His will, and you are mistreated by others because you have identified with Christ, Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Now, it may be hard for you to discern, right? You don't want to rejoice if you're being a jerk, right? So it's good to have counsel and to know, yeah, from others, you're being persecuted. So, this is not a warning, per se. It's not a discouragement, per se. It's actually Saul's going to be blessed. And that's how we need to think about it. When you think that you might walk a path of persecution, think, I'm going to be blessed. The martyrs are very close to God in heaven. So what does Ananias do at this point in time? He obeys the Lord. He obeys the Lord and he goes to Saul. Text says, and Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came, that's how we know that he's talking to Jesus has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Ananias obeys Jesus and goes to the house and lays his hands on Saul, just like the vision said. Can you imagine Saul? You know, Judas, hey, you got a visitor. His name's Ananias. (laughs) Right? And And so then, like, he gets the hands laid on him, like, oh, that was going to happen next, Right? And boom, he can see, and he's like, oh, I've seen this guy before. 
in that vision that I had. <laughs> oh, encouragement from Jesus for Saul to start his ministry. Commentary says, The purpose of the laying on of hands is the healing of Saul and the conveying of the Holy Spirit, not a commissioning or an ordination for ministry. While it's surprising that Luke reports direct speech of Ananias but not of Saul, the focus on Ananias' message to Saul underscores, and this is what happens when we become Christians, it underscores Saul's passive reception of Jesus' revelation, of Jesus' healing, and of Jesus' gift of the Holy Spirit. Saul will be active soon enough. And this is more of a, a glorious demonstration of what it looks like to be born again, to become a Christian. As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to live when you followed the, the spirit of this world, when you followed the devil. Paraphrasing Ephesians chapter, chapter 2, written by whom? Paul. He lived this. He knows that he was dead in his sins and his trespasses as he was walking to Damascus. He knows that he was eaten up by hatred and zeal for wickedness and there was no hope he was going to save himself or look to follow Jesus. He knows that. And he's brought into this dark place where he's contemplating that he harmed Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Messiah. That he harmed his people. That he harmed them threw them in prison, had them killed, left the children as orphans. He's dealing with this. He's brought into that dark place. And he's brought to new life by God. And that's what happens, is you are a passive recipient of salvation. What can a dead person do? A spiritually dead person, nothing. You just keep sinning. You keep living in the flesh. But when God decides it's your time. He comes and He shines the light of His glory into your heart. And He gives you the knowledge of your own sin and your flesh and what you've done to Jesus and what you've done to yourself and what you've done to others through your own sin. And He gives you grief and sadness over what you've done. And He takes you to the cross. And He shows you your Savior's died for you. And His blood cleanses you of your sins. And you hear His voice. And you're brought into new life. This is what God does to you. This is the act of Jesus upon Saul. Hopefully it's been the act of Jesus upon your soul by his spirit. It's all what we get from God. Even the faith, even the faith to believe that you're a sinner comes from God. Even the faith to see what you deserve from him comes from God. Even the faith to trust in such a glorious Savior You'd think anybody would believe that? No. Comes from God. Saul did nothing in his salvation, nor do you or anyone who has ever been saved. It is all of God. And praise be to God, because if any part of it was from me, I'd lose it. Would have already lost it. Cannot be lost because it's from God. Praise him, brothers and sisters. Saul will be active soon enough, but he didn't do anything to save himself. Okay, next. It appears as though Ananias has believed enough about Jesus' report of Saul to think that he's probably been converted. Why? He calls him brother. Now, maybe he could have been calling him brother as a fellow Jew. There's that possibility. But it seems as though he sees him as a fellow in Christ. So, likely, at some point during his blindness, Saul's been born again from above. 
So thus, according to the commentary, the term brother probably suggests that Ananias greets Saul as a fellow believer who belongs to the group of followers of Jesus. So he doesn't walk in treating him like the Saul who was the killer. You know, he doesn't walk in treating him according to the stories that he heard about all these broken families and the terrible things that he had done to people. He doesn't walk in there treating him that way. Kind of reminds me of Corey Ten Boom raising her hand and shaking hands with the Nazi who asked her for forgiveness. Ananias refers to Jesus as the Lord, the Lord Jesus. We learn from this. This is spoken in a way that Jesus is not only Ananias' Lord, he's not only Saul's Lord, but he is the Lord. He is the Master. And he makes it clear, good messengers are always clear. He says, who appeared to you on the road. So, there's only one Jesus. You'll hear the Mormons talk about Jesus. That's not the real Jesus. You'll hear the Jehovah's Witnesses talk about Jesus. That's not the real Jesus. You'll hear Muslims talk about Jesus. That's not the real Jesus. Good messengers are very clear. Especially when it comes to who Jesus is. He says, who appeared to you on the road. Good messengers leave no room for uncertainty, especially about who Jesus is. And Ananias says, Jesus sent me to you. See, good evangelists are always very clear about who gets the credit. Right? Ananias, he knows he's just a guy who got saved by Jesus. You know, he was struck like Paul's been struck, like you've been struck if you're a Christian with your own sin and brought back to life, and you don't take any credit for it because you know all you would have done without Jesus is continue to sin. That's all you would have done. You could educate you, you could strengthen you, you could tell you all kinds of great things, you could even read your Bible a thousand times, but unless he came into your life and moved in your life, you'd still be hating on him without his work. So Ananias knows this too. Every good evangelist wants to make sure everybody knows that. Ananias wants Saul to know that this blessing that he's about to receive is from the Lord. Not from Ananias or any power in him. Like John the Baptist said, he must increase. I must decrease. May that be true of us. May be so true of us that people just see Jesus through us, in us, as we serve and as we love. There's a miraculous healing that takes place. Don't miss that. You know, we can kind of skim over that. Oh, of course, Jesus heals the blind. Is he still the same Jesus? Are there still blind people in the world? Might we expect to see Jesus Christ miraculously heal a blind person as the gospel goes forth? We should. We should expect to see that. Do we, can we rub the genie bottle and make God do it? Of course not. Of course not. But we're almost as bad if we act as if Jesus is not the same Jesus yesterday, today, and forever. You've heard me say this. As we go through the book of Acts, I'm going to say it over and over again, brothers and sisters, as you pray, could you, could you please pray for so-and-so because they've got thus and such with the kidney or that and, that and this with the leg or thus and such with the shoulder or thus and such with the back? I mean, you know you're not just praying because it's nice to do that. <laughs> you know you're not just praying because you're just a loving friend. I hope that you're praying, expecting to see Jesus move. Right? And we have health issues in our church. Why not pray with that expectation that Jesus will move today in our midst? For his sake, for his glory, for his name's sake. All right, next. He says, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So somehow Ananias knows from Christ that this laying on of hands is not just to get rid of his spiritual blindness, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, is this the moment of his conversion? 
right? Perhaps this is when he is actually born again. Some would, some would argue that. Or is he receiving the gifts that go along with receiving the Holy Spirit, these special miraculous gifts like the speaking in tongues that we've talked about, accelerating the gospel. Paul says later, I speak in tongues. Right? He says that later, right into the Corinthians. Commentary says he assures him that he shall not only have his sight restored, but be filled with the Holy Ghost. He must himself be an apostle and must in nothing come behind the chief of the apostles and therefore must receive the Holy Ghost immediately and not as others did by the interposition of the apostles and Ananias' putting his hands upon him before he was baptized was for the conferring of the Holy Ghost. So there's another idea here regarding the conferring of the Holy Ghost at that time being associated with apostolic authority. Okay? So that's where Matthew Henry is coming from. What happens next? Saul sees. The blinders fall off. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. So, God often does things in the physical realm for us to see that are symbols of what he's doing in, in the spiritual realm. Okay? So, these scales fall off, and it's, it's in a miraculous healing, and it demonstrates God's great power. Some physical thing fell off his eyes. Who knows what that's about? We can also safely infer that Saul is filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And so a similar type of thing is taking place inside of Saul, where he's being made not only to see Ananias and go, oh, hey, that's the guy from my vision, but he's being, he's being made to see that he has a whole new way of seeing the cosmos. The whole world has been changed. He understands far more than just he can see with his eyes. Commentary says, Christ's commission is to open the blind eyes and to bring out the prisoners from the prison. Saul is delivered from the spirit of bondage by receiving sight, which was signified by the falling of scales from his eyes, and this immediately and forthwith. The cure was sudden to show that it was miraculous. This was not because maybe he rubbed a salve on his eyes and had some sort of you know, medicinal-based healing, which we also give credit to God for, but something miraculous took place. <clears throat> so what happens next? Saul arose and was baptized. Have you been baptized? I mean, you see the very first, if you will, the first action that Paul takes. I mean, he said yes to everything before this, right? So that's kind of an action, but that's passive. Right? Irresistible grace. Nobody says no to Jesus when, when he opens their eyes and shows them their own sin and shows them what they deserve and shows them who he is and shows them eternal life and shows them restored glory and shows them a cosmos conquered by Jesus and the forces of evil placed under the foot of Jesus and that they can be a part of that. Nobody says no to that. But what is his first action? His first action described as he arose and he was baptized. Now, he was praying, right? But that's on the inside, right? What is the first thing he goes and does that you could see? He was baptized. Saul begins his Christian service by obeying Christ and receiving Christian baptism. We know this from, from Peter's sermon. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Brothers and sisters, 
baptism as an act of obedience is very, very important to God. What does this mean? Well, as an extension of this, our theology of baptism, we want to take it seriously. We want to take it seriously. We don't want to inadvertently not baptize when we should be baptizing. Commentary says, He was baptized and thereby submitted to the government of Christ and cast himself upon the grace of Christ. Thus, he was entered into Christ's school, hired into his family, enlisted under his banner, and joined himself to him for better, for worse. The point was gained, it is settled, Saul is now a disciple of Christ, not only ceases to oppose him, but devotes himself entirely to his service and honor. And you can see the process of Saul initially taking membership in the church at Damascus. This whole thing unfolds. It starts with him being baptized, apparently, in the context of that Christian community there in Damascus. How beautiful. Saul eats and stays with the Damascus disciples. That's what happens last in this little vignette, this pericope, right? Um, pericope, vignette, gospel story. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. All right, so brothers and sisters, we are, we are victims in our day and age of Gnosticism and of individualism, okay? And those two things are clearly shown to be unbiblical and, and false ways of thinking and living. And Paul, I guess he's not Saul, he's Paul, he's still Saul. I keep calling him Paul. The scriptures are still calling him Saul. Saul, I don't know if he understands the theology, we don't really know what's in his mind, but what he demonstrates to us is that Gnosticism is nonsense and that individualism is dangerous. And just not fun. Okay, not both of those things are not what it's supposed to be like as Christians. As Christians, we're supposed to enjoy good things and have strong bodies. As Christians, we're supposed to enjoy fellowship with other Christians. If, if you don't believe that, then you've been lied to. If you don't prioritize that, you have your priorities out of whack and you're missing out on so many wonderful things that God has for you. All that, from when he had received food, he was strengthened. Saul then spent some, some days with the disciples at Damascus. So he begins his new journey with the Lord. He's been baptized. He's been fasting, right, three days? Right, we know that. He's not only been in the dark, but he hasn't eaten or drinking, drinking from Tennessee. He hasn't had anything to drink or eat for three days. We're not Gnostics, brothers and sisters. Our bodies matter. Even the spiritual bodies that we're going to get in the new heaven and earth, Jesus had that, right? As he was raised, we will be raised. He's the first fruit. How he was raised, we will be raised. And he ate and he drank in that new body. And with a non-spiritual body, the disciples were able to touch his spiritual body. So we're, all the things about our physical body are going to persist in our spiritual bodies. We're still going to eat. We're still going to drink. We're still going to enjoy light. We're going to still enjoy singing. All the things that go along with having a physical body, none of those things are lost when we get our spiritual body. Except the pain and the suffering and the brokenness and the sickness and all those things. And it'll be heightened. Our ability to enjoy things will be far, far greater. Praise God. We are not Gnostics. This body is important to God. And what we do with it is important to God. 
Commentary says, The Lord is for the body, and therefore care must be taken of it to keep it in good plight, that it may be fit to serve the soul in God's service, and that Christ may be magnified in it. To those of you who have regularly asked me if I've been working out, thank you. Keep asking and praying. We should all take care of our bodies. And enjoy food, enjoy drink, enjoy the good things of life together. Okay, even more, Saul not only needs to recover his strength because he hasn't been eating or drinking, I'm sure he enjoyed that food, even more, he needs Christian fellowship to recover from so much spiritual starvation amidst his former Jewish masters. They had been feeding him nasty. And he had become nasty. Certainly he was not a pleasant person given the anger that fed him all the time. He had to recover from that. Brothers and sisters, we need to be in one another's presence becoming like Christ together as a body, worshiping Him together in spirit and truth. And we need the doxological context of sanctification. You're being changed right now. You're being sanctified right now in ways that cannot happen anywhere else. Right now, in the context of Christian worship. Are we lifted up? Or is your heart lifted up before the Lord right now? Are we seated in the heavenlies in Christ together right now, consciously, intentionally, worshiping Him? Do you know that you are in the heavenlies right now? See, uh, being aware of that, it's, it's the way God. It's one, it's one major way God changes us. So, even more, He needs this Christian fellowship to recover from so much spiritual starvation amidst His former Jewish masters. Brothers, I just hope that, brothers and sisters, I hope you're experiencing this when you come to worship God. I hope you're experiencing the joy and the gladness and the transformation of Christian worship when you come to this place on the Lord's Day. May God bless each and every soul to experience His touch when we're together. Not just here, but in every local assembly throughout the world where Christians are worshiping Him in spirit and truth. Commentary says, note, those that take God for their God take His people for their people. Let that sink in. Note that those that take God for their God take His people for their people. They don't go worship by by themselves in the woods. My sanctuary is the forest. And just ignore being with God's people. That's the devil's lie. Intending to separate individuals from God's ways. From God's blessings from the fullness of life that's available to them. Going on with the commentary, Saul associated with the disciples because now he saw an amiableness and an excellency in them because he loved them and found that he improved in knowledge and grace by conversing with them. And thus he made profession of his Christian faith and openly declared himself a disciple of Christ by associating with those that were Christ's disciples. We don't know all of this for sure, but probably it was a healthy Christian community. And probably Saul was experiencing the joys of being with Christians. And so we want to be a joy to one another. We want to live out the one another's in a way with, with sweetness and humility. That we are a family. That God is our Father and we are siblings and we love being in one another's midst. Not just 
during corporate worship, as I've already discussed, but in the fellowship and looking forward to spending time with one another as God allows. So, praise be to God for his word. A few questions to bring this home. We're at the one hour mark, so I'm trying to make this quick. Please note God's providence in Ananias and in the gospel being at Damascus and expect to find providences yourself as you go forth to do God's will. Okay, I want you to think that way. We should all be thinking that way. As we go forth to do his will, do you, do you expect you might show up where Jesus hasn't been yet? <laughs> or do you expect to show up in a place where Jesus has already been working? Next, note the gospel's gone to Syria at this point. The gospel is for the whole world. The gospel is expanding outside of Jerusalem like Jesus said it would. Do you understand the gospel is a global message? We have a global king and a global kingdom and that we're called to have to call for all men everywhere to repent. Next. You believe it when Jesus says, my sheep, hear my voice, and they follow me. Do you seek Christ in his word and by his spirit, trusting that he is your living savior and that his voice speaks to you from heaven by his word and by his spirit? Do you? By name. And that he will give you his wisdom from heaven. He will speak to you in his word. He believed this. It's not as if Jesus has just thrown his word out there and gone to sleep and you've got to figure it out. No. He is alive. And by his spirit, he still speaks to us in his word. He speaks to you today in your life as you're going through your life. By his word and by his spirit. Next, do you obey the Lord even when his command will take you into harm's way? Do you obey the Lord even when obeying him threatens something that you love? Or do you obey him when the effort seems futile? Now that's a waste. Who would do that? Think about your evangelism. Do you only share the gospel with those who look like they're good candidates? You know, they have nice clothes on. You know, they've kind of clean and shaven. Or are you, are you looking at them or are you looking at God in, in choosing to whom you will share the gospel, with whom you'll share the gospel? How about in discipleship? Are you only interested in being involved in sanctification relationships with those around you who appear as though they're interested in sanctification relationships? Again, or are you looking to Jesus to be involved in relationships with anyone that he may bring in your path who's a believer and y'all can grow up in Christ together? You see, futility tempts us to make decisions based on our own sense of what's happening. I mean, do you think Ananias would have gone and spent some time with Saul on his own based on the cover of that book? No. How about this? Failed relationships. What is your prayer life like in terms of failed relationships? And a lot of this comes to our prayer life. How do you pray? With what kind of expectation do you pray? Similar kind of idea of what I was getting at in regards to healing, miraculous healings. What kind of expectation do you have when you pray? There are failed relationships that right now seem like there is no hope for them. You quit praying? Or do you keep praying with hope and with gladness of heart that Jesus hears your prayers?
How about for lost family members? Those who do not know Jesus Christ. Those who reject the gospel. Maybe it's been years. Maybe it's been decades. Maybe they're old. Maybe it won't be much longer on this earth for them. Do you look at them or do you look at Jesus Christ as you pray and as you live and as you seek to evangelize? Now, on a broader scale, we're, we're commanded by Jesus to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you want to talk about futility, really, for me, smashing me in the face so hard, apparent futility, is the idea of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ being unified over this globe, over the world. The idea of Christ reigning in the political decision-making of our political rulers. The idea that our culture and our leaders will think right about the murder of innocent children inside the womb and do right been in this fight, I know what the fleshly state of things is relatively inside the state house in Columbia. But we're going to introduce the same language again because we're not looking at those people. We're looking at Jesus. <clears throat> you see where I'm going with this? We walk by faith, not by sight. Remember Saul of Tarsus as a great example. Next. Do you voice your confusion to God? Not complaining, not grumbling, not with your heels dug in, not refusing, not making your case, blah, 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 about why you're not going to do what God has told you to do. Not that, not that. But you know, you're welcome to voice your confusion to God when you don't understand something. Whether it's a providential situation He's placed you in or something He's called you to do. Voice your confusion, voice your concerns to Jesus. He hears you. He will answer you. Do you rest in Christ's power? I've alluded to this already. The voice that can bring back the dead. There's no greater power than the one who controls the hearts of men and women. Do you rest in His great power? Or do you consider the arm of the flesh and your own eloquence, your own abilities? Well, I'm not quite good enough for that. Somebody else needs to do that. Or do you go forth trusting in Christ's power? We all need to look to Christ, don't we? Stepping back from the text, last question. Do you see Christ's the one who's acting? Right, so I called it Faithful Ananias, right? That's the name of the sermon. And last week it was the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. But we, we really have to stop. And no, this is... Jesus working. This is more of Jesus Christ faithfully working from heaven what He said He would do. That's what we see here. Next question associated, part B. Is Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever? Does His kingdom commission persist? Are we still called to be a part, as His church in the earth, a part of preaching the gospel of the kingdom to every creature on earth. Preaching remission of sins through His death upon the cross. Preaching repentance. Preaching His resurrection from the dead. 
declaring the gospel everywhere we go. Is he still working now to advance his kingdom? Because what he did then, there's no reason to think he's not still doing it today. In your life, through your life, and the lives of his people, here and throughout the world, and that he is still speaking from heaven, converting the lostest of souls. The soul that you've given up on a thousand times. Those are the souls, the types of souls that Jesus is still converting today. Amen? Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, oh, how we rejoice and give you thanks. We praise you for who you are, Lord Jesus Christ, that you came from heaven as a baby, walked this earth demonstrating to us grace and truth from heaven. If we've seen you, we've seen the Father. Going to the cross and taking upon yourself all of the sin of your people, becoming sin for us and receiving the wrath of God upon your soul. As a substitution for us who deserve to suffer. We praise you, O God, that Jesus Christ has been raised up from the dead and that He now reigns at your right hand and is sending forth the Holy Spirit in our hearts, in us and through us each and every day. Bless us, O God, that these would not just be words, but that we would be those living in the power of your Spirit. Not just here, but everywhere throughout the globe. And that your people would be filled with your power and filled with the rejoicing that we see, the joy that we see coming forth from all of your people here in the book of Acts. Oh, bless us as we go forth, Father, to be filled with gladness and to continue to praise you and give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.